can open your Bibles. Actually, we're going to look at several scriptures outside of Isaiah first. So probably the first one I'll have you turn to is 2 Corinthians 5. And um, let me tell you real quickly where we're going. Um, We will finish Isaiah next Wednesday, um, today's lesson, and then I will finish it next week. And then we only have, believe it or not, four weeks before Thanksgiving then after, after next Wednesday, and uh, we will be teaching the book of Philippians. We're just going to do it a, a chapter a week, which will take us right up to the Thanksgiving break. So um, I will teach this today and next week finish Isaiah and then Philippians 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we'll take our break and then uh, we'll come back after that. So uh, today we are moving to the second of the three sections that are part of the last part of Isaiah. Uh, that final movement we, we talked about a few weeks ago was chapter 56 through 66. And last week, or maybe the last two weeks, Kyle has talked about chapters 56 through 59. Today we're going to look at 60. 61 and 62, and then next week we'll do 63 through 66. So we're looking at the last uh, six chapters over the next two weeks. Um, I want to, this is a concept, I'm really not sure why one of us didn't bring it up before now, but I think this is a good time. Let me start, I'll just read 2 Corinthians 5 uh, to you in verse number 8, and then I'm going to have you look at several scriptures. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body and present uh, with the Lord. Romans 12, 2, you can jot that down. I'll just quote it to you. You probably know it. Um, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind uh, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to the world. Absent, We long to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. I think it's Colossians 3 um, that says we have been translated, we have been moved, rescued, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Turn also to um, the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read you all these scriptures and I'm going to talk about this concept. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Our citizenship, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to um, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 and verse number 14. Hebrews 13 and verse 14. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Then look at James. You're just going to flip a page. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. 
verse 1. I'll tie all these together in just a minute. James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered or dispersed abroad. And then let me have you look at two other scriptures. Um, 1 Peter chapter 1. So you're just going over one more. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Look at this. To the pilgrims of the dispersion, or the, the Greek word is diaspora, the ones who have been dispersed. So to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And then just flip over one chapter, 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. 1 Peter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust. So let me kind of recap um, those, those scriptures um, that I read to you. We are longing to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. We've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here we have no continuing city, but we look for one. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. James 1, to those who are dispersed. 1 Peter 1, to the scattered ones. And 1 Peter 2, 11, to the pilgrims and sojourners. So all of those scriptures, let's see how keen everybody's mind is this morning. What do those have in common? What, what is kind of the underlying message of all of those scriptures that I just read to you? Mo? Okay. I don't think we'll ever be able to, to mix with the other with the world. Okay. We're Okay. We're not there. We're Okay, so what Mo said is exactly right. That all of those scriptures, what those scriptures have in common are the notion or the concept that this is not where we belong that we are only aliens here. We are strangers. We are pilgrims. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. All of those things, all of those passages of scripture say the same thing, that where we are now is not where we are headed. All right. Um, Another way of saying that, and this is the reason I bring it up in Isaiah, and you go back to Isaiah 60 now, because we're going to jump into Isaiah in just a moment. But the reason I bring that up now is because another way to say this is we are people in exile. The land we are living in now is not the land that we belong in, right? Everybody agree with that? And so who is the book of Isaiah written to? It is written to Jews who have been dispersed to Babylon, wondering, will they ever get out of this land that they don't belong in? They are in exile. 
And all of the promises that are given to them um, really have twofold meaning. There is um, all the promises of Isaiah speak to these real people that were in Babylon telling them that your days of exile are going to come to an end. But the second part of what Isaiah says, and it's actually a, that first meaning that speaks to the Jews of that day really is kind of the lower meaning. It has a higher meaning, and that higher meaning is to all of us still today who are in a land called the world, don't be conformed to it because our citizenship is in heaven. So all of Isaiah also speaks to us saying, yes, you are in exile now. And no, it doesn't look all that great right now. But there is a day coming when you are going to come out of exile into the place that you were called to be, created to be, and destined to be. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, so I want us to read these last few chapters, especially with that concept of being people in exile. Remember that. If you don't remember the rest of the stuff on the board, remember we are people in exile. Um, That's why we should not be um, overly consumed by the difficulty of this world. Now, we should be consumed by it in the sense that we need to win people to Christ and they need to also be on their way to heaven. We don't want to, you know, sometimes we can go to the other extreme like, well, que sera, sera, doesn't matter. Well, it does matter because people are on their way to hell and we want to rescue them from that. But at the end of the day, whatever we personally face um, is only a blip compared to eternity. And so we, um, our present suffering, Paul says, is not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. So keep that in mind as we look at Isaiah 60 today. So chapters 60 through 62, we'll go back to the notes, reveal a future for Jerusalem in which the glory of God will shine brightly through the anointed servant. And who's the anointed servant? It's being talked about the whole way. It's the Messiah that was to come. It is Jesus. Uh, Isaiah 61 and verse 1 um, says this, and it's in your notes. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is as if the Messiah is speaking, and he is saying, I am anointed to encourage those who are in exile to know that this is not the end, that they can put off the garment or they put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. They can rejoice because they're in exile now, but they will not always be in exile. So let's talk about chapter 60, the coming glory. Um, Let's read the first three verses in your Bibles, Isaiah 60. Arise and shine for the light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. 
For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. So in chapter 60, the word to these exiles in Babylon is arise and shine, lights come. You're coming out of exile. There's going, there is hope that has come. I want you to notice, and I put this in your notes, chapter 59 and verse 9. Notice the contrast with the hopelessness of just one chapter before. Therefore, justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. Watch this. That's the testimony of the people in Babylon. We're looking for light. There's nothing. I mean, think about this. How how many of us think or say or hear people say today, man, I'm looking for some good in this world. There's just nothing to, everything's dark. Everything's black. That's how these people in exile felt. But the word of chapter 60 is arise and shine. The light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. There is hope beyond this exile. Notice in this promise in chapter 60, the light does not come um, from within Zion. It's not, look to Jerusalem, there's light. But God's glory is being reflected from the servant, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 42 in verse 6, and the, the scripture is in your notes, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles. In other words, the light is not Jerusalem. The light is not the Jews. The light is Christ among his people that will reflect out of them and become a light to the world. Isaiah 49 and verse 6 on the top of page 2. Indeed, he says... Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Zion, Jerusalem, will be the lamp out of which that light shines. God shows his glory with Israel because they, or he shares his glory, it should say, with Israel because they have a mission to share the light with the nations. Let me just go away from the notes for just a moment. I've shared this several times, um, and I want to make sure we get this. God did not select Abraham. God said to Abraham, I blessed you. Uh, I will make of you uh, many nations, the, as the stars of the sky and descendants uh, and the sand of the sea, so shall your descendants be. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. But why did God choose Israel? Did He choose Israel to be this little blessed, tiny little nation on this strip of land, so that they could have all of the luxury and all of the blessing? And is that why He chose them? No, He chose them for responsibility. He chose them so that through Israel, the Messiah would come, who would be a light to all of the world. The the problem with, think about this, God called Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, and yet they're the ones that didn't want anything to do with the Gentiles. And 
let me just bring this right down to us. We get kind of arrogant in our Christianity. Well, I know Jesus and my life is sanctified and I don't do this and I don't do this. But God didn't bless us so we could walk around arrogant about who we are. He blessed us so that we'd be a light to the people that sometimes we despise and push away. You all with me so far? And so, so this is the whole point. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. It's, it's in your notes. We are a chosen generation. I preached this just a few weeks ago. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God, God did not save us to make us a little club that's proud and arrogant about who we are. He saved us so we would be a light to the people that are still in darkness. Everybody with me? Nod your head at me if you get that. Okay, so Israel, Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles. We are called to be a light to a dark world. And so to these people in exile, arise, shine, the light has come, the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. But why do they have that light? Not just to feel better about themselves, but to share it with a broken world. Now, in verses four through nine, um, there's a promise of the return of those who have been scattered. We won't go into great detail here, but we'll talk about it. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart shall swell with joy, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitudes of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba, shall come. They shall bring gold and incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Gadar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Neboth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are those who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roost? Surely the coastland shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish shall come first. To do what? To bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. So the promise of verses four through nine are that, um, first of all, there's two or three promises here, that all the nations will ultimately come to Christ. They will worship the anointed one. What does Philippians chapter two say? There's a day coming that what every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Christ is the Lord. They will come not to see Zion, not to see Jerusalem, but to see the Messiah. And they will bring back that which they thought forever were gone, the sons and the daughters, and these nations will also bring their wealth. It's interesting that um, throughout the course of the New Testament, um, the pagan Gentiles were always interested in Jesus. They were always interested in the Messiah. Put a couple of scriptures here, and you're familiar with both of these. Um, in Matthew 2, this is in the, the birth of Christ, the story of his birth. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men came from the east. These are not, these are not Jews. Wise men came from the east saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We have seen a star in the east, and we have come to worship him. So these, these pagan Gentiles, 
something that was attracting them to the Messiah. This is part of the Isaiah prophecy that Gentiles will come. And then in John chapter 12, remember the story, John chapter 12, uh, Jesus is teaching and there were certain Greeks, Greeks were Gentiles, among those who came to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. So all, all through the New Testament, there has been this, this um, interest in the Messiah, this interest in uh, the anointed servant. I want to take you to one other place. It's the Gospel of Luke. Can you turn there real quickly? It's not in your, not in your notes. Look at Luke um, chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, if you turn there. And um, I want to show you a prophecy that you are familiar with, Luke chapter 2, and uh, look at verse 28, Luke chapter 2 and verse 28, and um, this is Simeon, and Simeon is in the temple, and Jesus is eight days old. Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to Simeon, who is serving as the priest in the temple, and he holds Jesus in his arms. What, what did God promise to Simeon? Anybody remember? God had made a promise to Simeon. All right, he'd see the Savior. He would not die until he had seen the Savior. So Simeon holds Jesus in his arms, and he blesses God, and he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. In other words, I can die now because your promise is kept. I've seen the Savior. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. It's always been, please get this, it's always been God's intention, not just for the Jews to know God, but for all people. So God shows the Jews to be the channel through which the world would know the Messiah. Now, what happened is, well, you know what happened. They decided he wasn't their Messiah. They, he's not, we don't want a crucified Messiah. And so they rejected him. And so... That's when the church comes in, because when, when Israel rejected Christ, and I won't tell I haven't taught in a while. Not only am I rusty, but I'm rambling. So let me ramble just a little bit. In Romans chapter 9, the Bible talks about um, the natural branch. Actually, that would be, there's the natural branch. Who's the natural branch in Romans 9? Is it Jew or Gentile? It's the Jew. The natural branch is the Jew, all right? So this is in Romans 9. So what happened? The Jews rejected Christ, right? They crucified him. So what does Paul say God did with the natural branch? He cut it off. And so what did he do then? And so what did he do when he cut off the natural branch? He grafted in the Gentiles, now, we're grafted in, listen, they were not chosen for privilege, but responsibility. So when we got grafted in, we didn't get grafted in for privilege. We got grafted in for responsibility to do what they failed to do. And as a matter of fact, in Romans 9, Paul says, actually Romans 11, Paul says to the Gentiles, us, don't get cocky, he says, because if I can cut off the natural branch because they disobeyed, 
You sure know I can cut off the grafted in branch if you disobey. So in other words, if we just walk around and, oh, we're blessed, we have privilege, he'll find somebody else to do what he called the Jews to do in the first place, and that is to bring the glory of the Messiah to the Gentiles. And so we have, we're grafted in not to be rich and healthy and famous. We're grafted in to tell people about the Messiah, to be a light to the world, right, everybody? All right, so... Um, so this, this call about the Gentiles coming has always been part of the New Testament story. So now let's go back to the notes. So this text about, back in Isaiah, about people coming and, and bringing the wealth, it really has, I think, a threefold um, interpretation. One, it speaks of the people actually returning from exile. There was a time... Um, when we get to the book of Nehemiah, that, um, that the Persian king says, you can go home. And so many of them went home. So it had kind of its early fulfillment when they went home back to the land. I think it has a secondary fulfillment in 1948 when Israel became a nation. And people came from all over the place to re-inhabit the land of Israel. So there's even a second fulfillment there. But its ultimate fulfillment will be at the return of Christ. When, when, when every knee bows and every tongue... Because the fact of the matter is, look, right now every knee is not bowing. And every tongue is not confessing. Now, true, there are people from every nation coming to Christ... But it's still not in the fullest measure that it will be when Christ returns. So Isaiah 60 is painting a picture of God's people returning from exile and nations coming to worship him, which happened when Israel went back from Babylon. It happened in 1948, but will happen in its fullest measure when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom, which we'll get to in the later chapters of Isaiah. Now, we go to verse 10 of chapter 60, and um, it's really just more of the same. It talks about how Zion will be served by the nations. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. So he's saying to Jerusalem, I've judged you um, in my wrath. But I'm going to give you favor and you're going to be blessed. By the way, um, Kyle and I had this discussion yesterday. I was looking at a sermon I'm going to preach the first week of November. Um, Habakkuk prayed, God in wrath, remember mercy. And so part of who God is, the character of God is he's a God of justice and a God of wrath, but he's also a God of love and mercy. And, and there is, we, what Kyle and I were talking about is, is it fair to say or is it right to say that there is tension inside of God between wrath and mercy? I'm not sure that's the word I like, but, but there, there are two elements of who, I mean, there's two qualities. That, that's why Calvary had to happen, because God had to be just. He could not be unjust. And he'd already said that a person who sins has to die. So he had to, there had to be a penalty, but because God is not only a God of justice, but also a God of love, 
in love, he sent Jesus to take the penalty. So, so there's always this, um, and I'm going to use the word tension until I come up with a better one. There's always this tension in the character of God between his justice and his mercy. All right. So that's what he's saying. In my wrath, I struck you. In my favor, I've had mercy on you. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. will not be shut day or night. That men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. For the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish. And all those nations shall be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. The cypress, the pine, the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary. And I will make the place of my feet glorious. Also the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Let me uh, try to explain a concept that is almost um, unexplainable. So let's see how I can do with this. Um, I sort of talked about this already, but prophecy, let me try a different way. Um, prophecy always has layers of fulfillment. Okay, so part of what I have read to you happened when Israel went back home. All right. When, when Israel left Babylon and the Persian king said, you can go back to Israel. Part of this happened. Part of what I'm reading in Isaiah happened then. That was kind of the first layer. But now let me, let me go back to the scriptures that I just read to you. Look at um, verse 14, for example. Isaiah 60, and the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. And all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. And they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. That's not been fully fulfilled yet. So there's this second layer. It's, we'll call it the ultimate layer of prophecy that is still yet to be fulfilled. It won't be fulfilled until what we read in Revelation 21 and 22 about a new Jerusalem and all the nations coming there to worship. So we always have to kind of have our minds open when we read prophetic scriptures to understand that that there is kind of a two-fold or a two-layer view of prophecy. So some of this will not be fulfilled until the return of Christ. And then... Um, in verses 15 through 22, uh, and really this fits into what I just said. Let me read these to you. Chapter 60, verse 15. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and the milk of the breast of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. I will make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no longer be your light by day. Now see, that cannot be talking about that day. The sun shall no longer be your light by day 
nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. And God, your glory, your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and the days of your morning shall be ended. Also, your people shall all be righteous. Well, that hasn't happened yet, right? That didn't happen then. They weren't all righteous. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand and a small one, a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it. In its time. So what is all of that talking about? Turn to page three. And on top of page three, let me read you these three passages of scripture from the book of Revelation. All right. I saw, this is John. This is the book of Revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city. Look at this. New Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their, should be their God. And there will be no more sorrow, no crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. And then in verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having a glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And then look at verse 22. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And look at this. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. That's just what Isaiah said, isn't it? No need for the sun or moon to shine. For the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all. We just read about that. The gates will stay open. Shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. So how do we apply Isaiah 60, Revelation 21? To find a historical setting for all of that is not only difficult, but it's impossible. All of this did not happen in this first layer of prophecy. All right. Now, again, I want to, I want to keep this, keep you thinking this way. He is writing to the Jews that are in Babylon in exile and saying, it's not always going to be this bad. I'm going to bring you out and there is hope. And, but he's at the same time, listen, at the same time, he is writing to us who are in exile, who are thinking, my goodness, is this world ever going to get better? All right. And so there is this, I like this big word, eschatological hope, eschatology, uh, just because I like doing stuff like this, eschaton, eschaton, that's a Greek word means things at the end, all right? So when we talk about eschatology, it's the study of things at the end. So an eschatological hope is there is hope at the end, all right? So there is this eschatological hope, and that is that all believers can have the reflection of Christ in their lives. And so we have to ask our question, ask ourselves a question. Is his light shining in us? Do, can we say, arise, shine, the light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon us? Can we really say that our lives are shining the light of Christ? 
And here's a question I'd like for us to ask. Are our lives more like pre-Isaiah 60? Can I read that scripture to you again? It's a couple pages back. Chapter 59. What was it? Chapter 59 and verse 9. Justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness for brightness, but we walk in blackness. Are our lives more like that? Or are our lives more like the light has come? The glory of the Lord is risen upon us. We can be in a dark world, but still shining the light of Jesus. Is his glory in us? Turn to um, Philippians if, if you would, real quickly, Philippians chapter um, 2, Philippians chapter 2, and look at verse, um, look at verse 14, Philippians two fourteen. Do all things without complaining and murmuring. You like that verse? Isn't that good? How many can say you live your life completely like that? You do all things without complaining or murmuring. Why? So that we can become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. All right? Now, we can either say, oh, we're in exile and life's tough and man, the world is awful and get all mad and angry about it and murmur and complain, talk bad and criticize, or we can do everything without murmuring and complaining and say, yes, we're in a dark world, but this is not where we're ending. And so in the meantime, we're going to shine like lights in a dark world. And we're going to try to tell as many people as we can, as we shine this light in this dark world, that this is not the end. That there is a day coming when there won't even need to be sun or moon. It'll be so bright because the Lamb of God will be the light. And we want to bring as many people along as we can. We, we are people of exile. But we don't have to live as depressed people of exile. That's why God said to Israel, yes, right now you're in exile, but it's not always going to be that way. So let the, the anointed servant who is in you shine out of you. And God says the same thing to us. But we have a choice. Are we going to be depressed and defeated? Or are we going to shine like lights in a dark universe, dark world? So... Um, Let me read you this quote. J. Alec Motyer says, It is when the Lord in his holiness is present among his people and manifested so that the world is magnetized. We want to be a magnet to the lost world. We want them to cling to us because the holiness of God and the light of Jesus is so real in us. And that's what God is calling Israel to. Don't, Don't sit there and you may be in exile, but don't live like exiled people. And that's... Too often the problem in the church. We get so defeated by the world instead of shining like Christ in a dark world. Let me pause there. Any questions, comments at all? Mo.
Yeah. Sure, because there's no hope. There's so much contrast yep. Yeah. Well, some people don't see it because not every Christian is living that way. And you've heard me use this illustration before. You know, we have always, lots of times I've used this illustration, we have always felt like, okay, the world is here, and we need to keep our separation from the world and be the church. Well, what we have done is, as the world has gotten worse, we may have kept the same separation, but we have gotten worse too. What should have been happening is, the closer we get to Christ, we should be being more and more transformed in his likeness. As the world gets worse, there ought to be a bigger disparity than there is. And the reason I think the church is not making the impact it ought to be making is because we're just trying to keep our distance and we're just plummeting as well. And, but man, if we started growing like Christ and, and into his image while the world goes down, people would see a much clearer difference. That's why some don't see it is because for the most part, the church is going downhill too. Does that make sense to everybody? So uh, that's why, and, and part of this being conformed to the image of Christ is being less critical and more loving and less depressed and more hopeful. All right. But too often our song is depressed and critical. Well, that doesn't impress the world. But if we can, in the midst of this dark world, say, I know it's tough, but I'm not hopeless. And and at a funeral, I don't grieve like someone who doesn't have hope. We really believe that we are in exile, but there's a better day coming. I think that's key. Mel? They don't see any difference. We've just, we've followed the same trajectory trajectory downward. And so that's why it's not about holiness is not um, necessarily about meeting a set of rules so that we are more pleasing to Christ, but, but it is about being a better witness to a lost world. So I'm not saying that because we've done this, we're not going to heaven. I'm just saying we're not making any impact on the world, but if we did this, and we started, see the, the problem again, I'm, wow, you can tell I haven't taught for a few weeks. All right. Between, between the presentation, Peter Heck and Kyle, I it's been forever. Um, and then I just lost that thought too. So, um, I really did lose the thought. Um, does somebody else, Martha, did you have something to say? I thought I saw your hand up a minute ago. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But we'd have a better chance if we were closer to Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I know what I was going to say. Um, again, the reason that I, I believe it's so important that we think about the things we do, it seems like it has become kind of vogue in the church world, especially among, among young people to say, well, what can I do? and still be a, what can I do that the world does and still be a Christian? And, and so, but to me, that's not the point. That's a very selfish idea because that's just, what can I do and still have eternal life when it ought to be, what can I give up 
and be so different from the world that they want what I have. So I think that we would probably convince people of living holy lives more if we approached it from that instead of beating them over the head with rules like you can't please God. Well, we can't please God even if we keep every rule in the book. So it's not about pleasing God. It's about being a better witness to a lost world. So any other questions or, yeah, Mo, you want to stand here? Would you like to stand here? You can, you're doing great. I'm just kidding with you. Oh, they change, yes. Right. And it's it's not about a, a code of rules. Everybody's not the same. But, but I do think we ought to be asking ourselves the question, how can I make Jesus more attractive to a lost world? And that, if we ask that question, I think we'd be far better off. Let's, uh, we'll go back, and, and really the rest of this will not take... Um, that long. All right. Chapter 61. So what was the means? Here's the question by which God's people can live righteous lives and in turn draw the nations to God. So how can we kind of dovetails right into what we've said? How can we do that? And the answer is through the Messiah, the righteous one, the anointed one who lives in us. The spirit of the Lord God, chapter 61, is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they They may be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, this is, if there's any doubt, of course, this is written 700 years before Jesus is born. If there's any doubt about who that's about, though, that doubt should be completely removed. When you read Luke chapter 4, we won't read it now. And Jesus walks into the synagogue and takes the scroll and reads this very passage and then says, today scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, closes the book and sits down. Jesus is saying, that folks was about me. Okay, that's what Jesus does in that moment. So this is clearly about the Messiah. He is the one that will allow our light to shine. He is the one. It's not something we do. It is his life living through us. So what are the results of the Messiah's work in our life? First of all, at the end of verse 3, that they may be called trees of righteousness or the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So God's people become the oaks of righteousness. Look on the top of page four. As Isaiah began, look at, look at, this is really interesting. Look at what God's people are called when Isaiah begins. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence and with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees, which you have desired. You shall be embarrassed because of the gardens, which you have chosen. You shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades, and as a garden that has no water. 
The strong shall be as tender, and the work of it is a spark. Both will burn together, and no one shall quench them. This is describing those who reject God. What are they like? They're like a tree whose leaves fade. But now we get to chapter 61, and if we allow the spirit of the Messiah, the life of Christ to live through us, we're not like a tree whose leaves fade. We are like the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. That's what happens when we let the life of Christ live through us. In Isaiah 126, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So God right off the bat says, here's what you're like now, but here's what I'm going to make you to become. And when we get to chapter 61, when the, when the spirit of the Lord is upon us or through us because of Christ, we become the planting of the Lord. Now, let's just work through chapter 61. What are the other blessings? The the servant Messiah, the life of Christ in us, will both deliver us and transform us. They shall rebuild, verse 4, the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So there will be transformation and rebuilding. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priest of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. God is saying to his people, I will even use others to bless you. I will even use the Gentiles to make you to become what I have intended for you to become. And then in verse 7, instead of shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. And so the servant Messiah in us will transform us and move us from disgrace to inheritance. And notice in verse 8 and 9, this is a work that is a divine work. This is not human work. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth. And will make with them an everlasting covenant. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who shall see them shall acknowledge them that they are the posterity whom the Lord has blessed. Listen to me for just a moment. Anything we become for God, anything that we accomplish for God, individually or as a church, is because God has done that, because God has blessed us, that because God's hand has been upon us. This is not about ego. This is not what we have accomplished. This is the work of the Lord. And then in verses 10 and 11, um, it just simply speaks of, and I'll read it, um, the praise of God's people. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me. Notice it's the work of the Lord. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Um, The application here is that God does for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. He dresses us in righteousness. Aren't we glad for that? He puts his righteousness on us. This is wedding verbiage, the clothing of the bridegroom and the bride. 
which should not surprise us. Ephesians 5 speaks of the church that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. Revelation 19, verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. But look at this, and to her it was granted, not earned, not deserved, to her it was granted to be arrayed with fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Listen to me, we do not have the righteousness of God because we've earned it or deserved it. It has been granted to us because he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then, of course, First Thessalonians 3.13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now, let me, um, just a couple of statements here. Most of us want God's power for holy living, but we want to stay in control of our own lives. God, make me holy, but let me control my own life. But the question is, will we become bond slaves to him? Will doubt replace faith even... Will doubt replace faith when we fail? Do we truly believe that he will transform us? Do we truly believe that his righteousness in us can make us what he has called us to be? And then we go to chapter 62, and we'll wrap this up very quickly. Um, This is the assurance... So we get to the verse 11 of chapter 61 and we ask ourselves these questions. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe God can do this? And chapter 62 is the assurance of that. Verse 1, for Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. In other words, God is saying... I will make this happen. There will, you will come out of exile and you will be clothed in the righteousness of the bride. And then he says in verse 2 and 3 that nations will see, the Gentiles will see your righteousness and the kings your glory. You will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So God says, I'm going to make it happen. Nations will see it. Verse 4, you'll no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be turned desolate. Let me, one more time, look, I don't have the picture up here anymore, but he's talking to these people in Babylon. You're not going to be called forsaken anymore. You're going to be called my children. He's talking to us in a dark world. You're not going to be left out here forever. You will be blessed and honored as mine. Verse number five talks about reconciliation. Uh, Verse five, I've lost my place. Okay, here we go. Verse five, for as a young man marries a virgin, so your son shall marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. There will be reconciliation. And then in verses six through nine, God watches over his own. I've set watchmen on your walls. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, don't keep silent. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. Surely I will no longer give your grain as food for your enemies. The sons of your foreigners shall not drink your new wine. Verse 9, 
But those who have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. Those who have brought it together shall drink it in my holy court. So God says, I'm going to watch over it, over you. And then in verses 10 and 11 and 12, God just simply says, I will bring it to pass. It's going to happen. So let me um, close. To a people in exile, one more time. Let me um, just put this up here one more time. So we've got Babylon. And this is where these people who are reading it are at. Who want to return to Israel. We have, we are in exile in the world. Someday, eternity in heaven. So what does God say to both groups of people? God is saying, I see you. There is worth in you. I value you. The value he sees is not just uh, individual value. It is the good of a people. It was Israel. It's the church, a community of people. And God wants us to have fellowship with him. Just as the, uh, the reason I put the Trinity in here is, you've heard me talk about this. Um, this maybe isn't even the place to say it, but I think it fits here pretty well. In First John chapter 1, let me just read this, verse 3. That which we have seen and we have heard, we declare to you, you may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. You've heard me talk before about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and they, they are in a community. They, um, they love and honor one another. And we are to model that same thing. We are, it's not to be, it's not to be that it all revolves around me. It, it's to be that we revolve around each other. We are encouraging one another. And so when God says, I see value in you, he's not just talking about you, Dennis, or you, Phyllis, or you, Dave, or me, Kevin. I see value in the people of God. I see value in the church. And he invites us into that relationship with him. Um, I won't close with those remarks. Those remarks would be made better probably to young people who struggle with self-esteem. But, but God promises us, we're in exile now, but it's not always going to be exile. He, he wants to use us now as his light, pointing to the day that we sometime experience or someday experience his glory. Any questions? Comments. All right. God bless you. We'll finish Isaiah next next Wednesday. Mm-hmm.